Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. It's officially summer, and that means it's time for our tradition at Here's the Thing, where our staff shares their favorite episodes in our summer staff series. First up is executive producer Kathy Russo, Kathy's been at Here's the Thing from the very beginning, so when she's selecting a much-loved episode, you know it has to be good. Kathy, take it away. Thanks, Alec. My summer staff pick is a show that features two women that, in my opinion, changed the face of TV. One, a generation above me, Carol Burnett, and one is a generation below me, Lena Dunham. These are two smart women driven by their artistic dreams. They could write, direct, and perform like no other in their generation. They made me laugh and cry. They were funny without being mean. First, Lena Dunham. I met her at a screening of her first movie, Tiny Furniture, and immediately became a huge fan. When Girls came out in 2012, a show about four young women living in New York City, I couldn't get enough and watched every episode at least three times. Girls was spot on, so smart and so brave and spoke to me in a way no other show had before. Lena took chances and I loved her playing Hannah on the show. She had a way of capturing moments I could relate to. Probably the best acting I've ever seen on TV was one of the last episodes of Girls in 2017. Hannah is single and very pregnant. She spends the day with an old boyfriend played by Adam Driver. Adam's not the father, but they spend a blissful day in the city and consider getting back together and raising this child. They end the day sitting across from each other in a diner and come to the silent, tear-strained realization that their tumultuous relationship will never work out. No words, just the expressions on their faces says it all, and it's heartbreaking. Now listen to Alex's interview with Lena, just as Girls was making it big. Lena Dunham has achieved an astonishing amount in just three years. 
Her portrayal of Hannah Horvath in Girls recently won her a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Comedy Series. This past October, she sold a book of essays and advice to Random House, and her boyfriend is a rock star. Today, she hardly resembles Aura, her character from Tiny Furniture. I thought I wouldn't have much in common with Lena, she's half my age, and has been fiercely embraced by my daughter's generation. But oh, how quickly we realized there was common ground between us, literally. My show's moving into the 30 Rock stages. No. Yes. We're taking you over You guys are moving to Silver Cup? Yes. You we, and Michael Fox. We were in Silver Cup. Then we went to Steiner because we couldn't get our stages back because some show that has one word that's about murder took it. And then we are coming back because you guys are leaving. So we're going to be on your stages and in your offices. Wow. Now, as I'm sitting here meeting you for the first time and talking to you for the first time, you are nothing like I imagined you would be. Really? Nothing. I'm a bit thrown here because you play someone who is, I guess, in your mind, and I want to talk about your vision of what kind of character you wanted to create, is a little bit a beat behind everyone else. Or I'll I'll let you articulate that, what you think she is. That's well put, though. The beat behind idea really speaks to me because I'm always sort of saying, when people ask about Hannah, I'm always sort of saying she's a version of me, but she's a few years behind me. And she's also sort of a few minutes behind everyone around her. So you really picked up on a concept that I'm sort of always thinking about a little bit when I play her and when I write her. But she's who you used to be. You know, it's funny. I think I used to, I think I, in order to convince myself that I should play this character or that I should even write this character, I had to say, well, I'm just writing myself. It's that easy. I'm just writing myself because the idea of sort of creating an entire other human can be so intimidating. Who are you, though? In real life? In real life, who are you? I think that Hannah is someone who I'm very capable of being, who's wounded, ambitious, but doesn't know where to place it. Hannah's sort of the version of myself if I'd had less understanding parents and sort of less drive to get things done. And I think who I am as a person who is always sort of, if I had to describe the war within myself that exists currently, it's sort of the challenge of trying to reconcile the part of me that that always thought I would be like, you know, a weird gender and women's studies teacher who occasionally showed movies at film festivals and hung out in my strange apartment that was stacked high with books. Trying to reconcile that with the part of me that has to like figure out Shoot the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Exactly. It was to shoot the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. It was to figure out a dress to wear for an event that, and everyone seems to be worried about whether or not the dress is in stores because it has to be my own dress. And so I'm dealing with all these sort of, this strange ecosystem and all these weird politics that I kind of never imagined would happen to me in my lifetime. You never imagined? No. You really never imagined it? I think I, my dream situation was that I would be someone who people thought, oh, she's doing important work in her own little corner. Like a Roz Chast cartoon character. Exactly. Like a Roz Chast cartoon character or like, I think because I went to pretentious private school, the biggest dream you would have is you'd be like, I'm going to be Joan Didion. That was kind of where your brain was allowed to wander. Or maybe Nora Ephron. Maybe you'll make films, but you're not going to be in films. Exactly. And I don't think, when I first started acting, I mean, I never got parts in high school. I never even... I never was able – I think I had a twofold thing about it. One is that I came from a family of artists, and so the idea was sort of like you made your work and then got out of the way of it. Like part of what was – I think I internalized the idea that your work was supposed to speak for you. You were not supposed to speak for your work. And so I think I was self-conscious about the idea of being – Self-promoting. Any, so self-promoting. And although that's not what acting is, it's 
It is now. It is. It's become that. <laughs> and then I also think that I thought, well, there's people who are professionals who can do this better than me. So I'm just going to act until I have access to the people who should be acting. And sometimes I still feel that way. Sometimes I think like, you know, I'll do this a little longer and then Produce. Michelle Williams can play me every day <laughs> till I die. <laughs> Something that's really nice about making a show that isn't that is a comedy that isn't stuck in any sort of net. I mean, 30 Rock was able to bust out of a lot of network sitcom tropes. But a lot of the time when you're on a I think one of the biggest things that networks prevent besides curse words and showing your breasts is development. I think that when you play, I think so many sitcom characters end up playing the same version of themselves in various scenarios it's funny, th- th- for years is, th- and this years. Is the, it, this is the thing that we talked about in the meeting to prep this thing with you, which was shows I've seen where the protagonist, male or female, they're going through the same set of problems in season six that they were in season one. It's just different lines and different co-stars. Yeah. And with you, I'm wondering, do you have a Bible on the show? Do you have an arc in your mind? Not even on paper, not even approved with your other, because you do this with Judd, correct? I do it with Judd and a woman named Jenny Connor, who's the other executive producer. And we have a great little writer's room, but our writer's room doesn't really work. Like, it's not like we write a script and then all sit together punching it up. It's much more we sit together at the beginning of the season and really talk through. It's like a giant therapy session where we work out the emotional arc and then we go to it. And when you work out that emotional arc, do you think to yourself, are the things that she's going through now, your character and the other characters, where you're saying to yourself, let's make sure they're not going through this, that there is growth a season from now or by the end of the season? Completely. And that's why I feel like it's okay for me to cut my hair or it's okay for me to start spinning or it's okay for me, you know, whatever I, whatever. To change. To change because I feel as though so much of what this show is about is about seeing these girls off into their adulthood. Like in my Bible, the ideal finale to the show would be a feeling like, you know, they don't have to have kids, they don't have to have husbands, but you look at them and you kind of go, they're on their way, they're more okay than they were when they started. Or they're less okay, but we have an understanding of what kind of adult we think they're going to be. Right. So describe to me, how does it start? How does, whose idea was girls, was it yours? It was mine because I basically, I went in, I made this movie, Tiny Furniture, and I made it, you know, my mom and sister starred. We shot it in my mom's house, my mom and dad's house. We, um, it was totally populated with friends, some of whom have made their way to girls with me. And What motivated you to want to do Tiny Furniture? I had always wanted to be a writer, and I used to think I wanted to be a playwright. And then in college, I sort of had this revelation where I thought, like, plays you rehearse and you rehearse and then they happen twice like I just felt so frustrated by the lack of permanence like I'd always been sort of turned on by the fact that when my parents as artists made work like they had these material items that would outlast them and I was frustrated that that wasn't a part of the theater experience so I started making short films and I made my first feature and went to South by Southwest Film Festival with it and then I just had the, and I'd been making web TV, and I just had this itch to sort of tell the specific story, and I wrote the script. In the kind well, of that's what I want to talk about is is, is that itch meaning beyond the arc of the shooting and the uh, and 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 the career aspects of it, or the burgeoning career. What, what, what was it about? What was going on in your life that you wanted to do that movie? On a practical, real life level, I wanted to talk about that moment between college and adulthood that felt so floundering, and so every day I felt like I was walking through the strangest most surreal soup. That would mean that on a deeper level, I kind of wanted to talk about change, which is what I always think is sort of the most interesting place to find characters is in a time of intense change. And so 
I sort of also wanted to capture this moment where I was, I knew that I wouldn't live at home forever, that my little sister wouldn't be sort of 17 and ambitious and but also stuck in her bedroom forever, that my mom was sort of looking in this beautiful moment where she kind of was, I mean, she'll murder me for saying this, but she looked that kind of beautiful way where it's like you're not quite old yet and you just look yeah. kind of she just looked kind of perfect to me yeah. and I just like a thought, great car yeah <laughs> and I just thought she's not my mother so I can say that <laughs> exactly and I just thought I want to capture all of this I want to capture our cats I want to capture our house I want to remember all of this and so so you really love your mom I'm obsessed with my mom okay <laughs> <laughs> I love my mom. And the, but I'm saying that's interesting that you have that feeling, and that's what makes you survey what's around you and want to capture that. Because I find typically people who are not happy, they got to wait a while till they can negotiate the pain to go back and talk totally. about that. So one of the biggest things that inspires me to make work is this feeling of looking around and going, even if you're not perfect, you're all so perfect right now. Let's Let's capture this and then... You know, I'd love the feeling. I was just watching, like, Panic in Needle Park last week, that movie, yeah. which is, you know— a, Kitty Wynn. Kitty, gosh, she's so good. Ooh. Where did Kitty Wynn go? Yeah, let me get that vial out for Kitty Wynn. She's <laughs> incredible. But so I was watching that, and I was just thinking about how exciting it was to be able to watch sort of, like, Al Pacino at that first moment when he was sort of, like, he still almost looked a little adolescent, and he was still—and tr- he was learning his craft. And, and just I, behaving on film. Yeah, and I just love— Capturing that, and that's something that I've tried to do with girls too, is sort of grab people and go, let's just let's just see you as you are right now. Now the uh, so the film did well. So then, how does girls happen? Girls happen because so then I went to LA and kind of did that. I went like, okay, I guess what you do next is get an agent, and I guess what you do next is try to figure out a what you do next. Tiny furniture helped you do all that. I mean, tiny, you're on the runway now. Yes, yeah. I was. I was on the runway, and I was going around LA doing the sort of what I call the couch and water bottle tour of LA, where you meet <laughs> everybody and have those kind of general meetings. Where and I remember it was so funny because at first I didn't understand that everybody says to you at the end of the general meeting, "Oh, I'd love to find a way to work with you." And so I would call my agent afterwards and go, "Oh my God, it was amazing!" And he said he wants to find a way to work with me. And he meant he wants you to come clean his pool. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So you're on the sofa water bottle tour, and what happens? On the sofa water bottle tour, and my agent, who I, I feel like you're not supposed to say you love your agent because it makes you sound really Hollywood. You out, love everyone. I love everyone, and also I have the best agent. He's, like, really been at it for a long time. He's like a cigar-smoking, you know, he's what I imagined an agent would be. What's his name? Be. His name's Peter Benedek, and he said to me— I was sort of saying to him, like, maybe I could get—I just wanted to make move out of my parents' house, and I thought—and make more movies. And I was like, maybe I could—should write a spec, How I Met Your Mother, and I could get staffed on a show. I mean, I didn't know any—I didn't know how any of this worked. And he said that I should go for a meeting at HBO, and I did. And I said, well, here's what I'd want to see is, like, a show about all my girlfriends, like, sort of like Tiny Furniture, but there's more of us, and we don't live with our parents anymore, but it's still about that. It's like—it was pitched so— Weekly, like a year after my movie, but there's more of us, and it's a TV show. So the so the conversation wasn't uh, coming out of, and Tiny Furniture in the indie and in the festival world had a very good buzz. What, there was no conversation, but you just going right into films and making more films. Normally, they're going to want to steer some, especially your age, who's very young. They're going to go, let's just keep making movies. Well, you know, there was a conversation, but. I think I picked up on the fact very early, going on the Couch and Water Bottle tour, that the kind of stories that I wanted to tell were not really being funded 
on a larger scale in film. Tina says that sometimes. The Tina I just finished working yeah. with. That, 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 that it's, it's, it seems like it's more difficult to A, to have the control you want in the film business and B, to say what you want to say. It is. And the fact is, is I could have kept saying what I wanted to say, you know, making $25,000 movies, but I wanted... It's weird. The reason that I like having some budget is not because, you know, I want to stage car crashes or I want to have, you know, 10 makeup artists on set, yeah. although those things... We'll would will would be lovely, right. but but it's more because of the fact that I do so many jobs. So it was so exciting to not have to worry anymore about answering the doorbell, about returning the equipment, about making sure the people had the pizza. Also, that's going to happen in TV. And, and what HBO I, has money. And HBO has <laughs> HBO is Time Warner, and but they have money, yeah. but they use it in this kind of amazing. They are it's this amazing model, which is that they don't have to answer to advertisers in the same way. Sure. So HBO can sort of fulfill its odd little interests and that's what I started out as and I what I didn't predict was how much I would love the opportunity to develop characters in this way and the kind of the fiber of TV itself. I mean for me one thing that I I I notice when I went to college, an interesting number of people, they really knew what they wanted to be. They yeah. weren't quite sure how to get there. Yeah. They, they had a dream. I want to become a lawyer. I want to become a doctor. I want to go into politics. I want to go into and, – and now people today, it seems like younger people, they really they, – they think they have more time to figure it out. Well, They're I turning th- 25 and they really don't have that picture and focus. Do you agree? I do agree and I think a big part of it is being – I think the the internet has cracked things open in a way that's both – beautiful and that it helps you find there's so many things that I never would have even known about things that have been huge for me that have existed because of the internet and I think that I've been able to partially you know connect with people who would be fans of the show because of the internet I think you know it's always exciting when I, like I there's this website called rookiemag.com that's run by this girl Tavi Jevonson and it's a it's like a smart teen magazine that exists only on the internet and I just think if when I was a teenager there had been that place and that message board I would have felt like the world was my oyster, like just meeting other weirdo girls who had the same – who like, you know, whatever at the time. I just wanted to like talk to someone about Connor Oberst or something on the internet and that would have been possible. But I think now the fact that like the internet has created so many strange specialized jobs and so many things where it's like, you know, I'm a brand consultant slash blog enhancer or whatever people are. Like suddenly the world feels – wide open, but there are less jobs available. And so it's a really confusing moment to make any decisive choice about what you want to do. It's interesting you say that the internet is responsible for that. And that idea of having too many choices than you need, you wind up... uh, That could also be a metaphor for like men in their 20s dating. I feel like men in their 20s... Like I once had dated a guy who told me that he didn't feel like he could be serious about anyone in New York because it would be like eating at the same restaurant every night in New York. Right. There's so many amazing choices. Right. It's New York City. I hope he chokes him at a restaurant he goes. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I shouldn't say that. That's mean. That's wrong. I'm sorry. I feel like that. So it's helpful to have it backed up by Alec Baldwin. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. More in a minute. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes 
and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Lena Dunham didn't have to look far to come up with her character on Girls. Physically, I'd say Hannah is, I mean, she's me because I play her, but she's, it's funny because she's chubby, but she doesn't, that's not where her anxiety comes from. Like, she's just not, I like playing a character who isn't, doesn't have a perfect body, but that's not the main source of their anxiety. I feel like we have very few female characters on television who don't look like models and aren't constantly discussing it. So, of course, Hannah has her moments of self-consciousness, just like every woman does, but that's not... She sort of doesn't notice that her clothes don't quite fit. She sort of doesn't think about what she eats. It's and I Clothes are just to cover you up and keep you warm. Exactly. They have some degree of style to them, great, but less like a character Exactly. And I like... She's more interested in, like, whether her clothes are funny and witty. Like, I don't think she really cares about being sexy. She's more just like, oh, this dress, like, has owls on it. How sweet. I used to be much... In college, I dressed like a complete loon. I feel like my dad always told me I looked like a lion tamer all the time. I've calmed down just because I realized that you could a lot of vests so many vests red vests so many red vests so many like you know strained boots pulled over my weird leggings with a three flounced skirt i could never accessorize uh-huh. enough it was oppressive now how many seasons of the show are you signed on to do well you know it's not clear i mean hbo contractually has me i think as an actor for 6 years but as a writer and i wish i should pay more attention to my deals but i'm just so excited to have my job i just go okay whatever you say but I think my dream world is that, you know, I want to kind of follow, like, you know how British shows always know, British shows and 30 Rock always know just when to get off the air. Right. The question becomes how you can maybe, you know, do that TV show and the, the, the schedule is how many months? We do, well, we, how many episodes? we've been doing 10, so I shoot four and a half months out of the year, then I'm editing, then I'm doing press, then I'm writing, then I'm back. So. Sure. 
So it's I not think, four and a half months. So it's not. It's, it's eight full, months. It's actually more like <sighs> twelve months. No. And so it did you really, make a movie during the break just now? No, I Why? couldn't because there was just no time. I finished shooting in August. I was editing. Why don't you them. make a deal with HBO where they'll finance your film so you're working for them and it's all in house? It's very smart. I mean, I I really want to make a movie. I have two features scripts that I've been working on that I just I want to make another before I make like a big massive ambitious movie. I mean, I want to make a creatively ambitious movie, but. I want to make another small movie. I have I have small movie ideas. Do you have a massive ambitious movie inside you? I do. And I'm also I'm writing a book. So that's something that was really Yeah, I heard about that. It's something that was really important to me to start doing at this hmm, point in my you career. You start and you write and produce your own TV show <laughs> and you're writing a book. Hmm, who did that remind me of? Who did that <laughs> remind me of? What are you going to write a book about? I'm writing a book. Well, I guess it's about me, although it's a little less about me because it also has advice, an advice component, but it's like personal essays. So is it like Paula Pell's Hey Young Girls? Oh my God, I love <laughs> Hey Young Girls. Makes me so happy. Paula Pell is funny. Paula Pell is someone who's funny and not mean. Yeah. Paula Pell's she's like, mean to the right people. She's just a dreamy person. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that's been so great about writing the book is I've always loved writing prose, and I wanted to make it a part of my career sooner rather than later because I didn't want it to be like when I decided to write a book in 10 years, it was like, oh, look, here's a celebrity memoir number 57. I wanted it to really feel like I'm a person who writes prose and that it's a part of my life and career for a long time. But unlike other people that are writing books, they don't have TV shows that they're starring in and writing. When you're done doing now not just 10 but 12 episodes, what yeah. do you have left to go into the book? There's stuff that's just for the book. There's stuff As an that's example, just, well, just like, topic-wise. I write a lot about my childhood in the book. I write a lot about my parents. I write a lot about um, college and sort of like the, I write a lot about that period. I write a lot about sort of like the beginning of being a sexual person. I write about relationships. I'm writing a lot about sort of female um, role models. What do you models. want to say about sexuality? It's interesting. I've had to become more conscious about – what I say and what I promote, not in a way that stifles me, but just in a way where I realize now that there are 17-year-old girls who come up to me and tell me that the show means a lot to them. And if the show- 1% of your audience is influenced, this is what I learned from someone, if yeah. 1% of your inf- of your audience, 1% yeah. is genuinely and in any way influenced by what you do and say, that's still tens of thousands of people. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And it's like, it's a platform that you have to take seriously. So you are, as a role model, what won't Hannah or the other girls in the quartet do? Jenny and I talk about this a lot. We won't fuck someone because they have a nice apartment. There's not going to be any version of sort of like prostituting yourself. There's not going to be any version of dating somebody because he can take you out to nice dinner. Now, two things that I think are kind of connected, which is how do men present themselves? You have a boyfriend. And I, I do. Want, and I don't want to pry into your personal life. But you, how do men present themselves to you differently? You said that Hannah was this and that and a chubby girl who didn't – and now you're – now the name Lena Dunham means something else to people. How do men present themselves to you now different from the way they used to? It's interesting. I mean I'm so bad at knowing if anybody's hitting on me. Like someone literally has to like beat me on the head with a drumstick and drag me back to their cave for me to understand that it's going on. But, you know, the thing is is that sleazy people are attracted to – and sleazy people and not sleazy people are attracted to – any sense of gravitas that someone might have. So I I definitely have had more, I mean, I definitely have had felt less ignored by the opposite sex, but I'm also so bad at perceiving any of it. And so sort of... How did you know your boyfriend liked you? 
well, we got set up on a blind date, so I knew he liked, well, I didn't know he liked me, but... He was predisposed. He was predisposed to like me because what we were going on was a date, and then that was a special situation because I went, oh, I think he likes me, and I like him, and right, now, you don't have to answer, t- Tell me if you don't want to answer this question, but I just find it charming. Yeah. Where did you go on your first date with your boyfriend? We went to Blue Ribbon Bakery in the West Village, and the reason I was happy was because I find picking a restaurant so anxiety-producing because I feel in like... New York. Yeah, because someone. It's the dilemma of Burden's ass. I, it really is. We're going to starve to death with two bells. We're going to starve to death, and also, what if I choose the wrong restaurant, and you have a bad association with it, or you think I'm sleazy? Reflects poorly on me. Exactly, it's just the worst. And like, what if we go there and you don't like it? Sitting there going, "You call this a brand muffin?" Exactly. It's so so stressful. So he said, before I even had to say anything, he said, "If it's stressful for you, I can pick the restaurant." And I felt like. Okay, I'm going to be in great hands. Where did he pick? And then he picked Blue Ribbon Bakery, and then I ate a cheese. And then I ordered a hamburger, and he said, I think you should get cheese on it. Isn't that nice? I was so glad. He's a very, very great person. To meet you, and tell me if I'm on to something here, you seem like someone that regardless of what you look like or didn't look like or what you had or didn't have, whoever you were, you have a very, very healthy and kind of guileless sense of who you are. And you presented yourself to people your entire life going, this is who I am, and if you like me, great, and if you don't, there's another 6.5 billion people out there, so go for it. Am I right? I mean, that's that's the most lovely way of putting it. I mean, I think... I think I always had a feeling like if you just stick around and continue to be yourself, the correct people will find you. And that's something that's been so wonderful about the show was that it kind of confirmed that for me, which is not everyone watches it, but the people who watch it understand it. And that feeling, I'm sure you've had this before, of uniting with your appropriate audience and sort of uniting with your people is like about as comforting as feelings get. Saturday night. 8 p.m., 1967 to sometime in the 70s, I'm a young girl sitting with my family in front of our black-and-white TV watching The Carol Burnett Show. It was an hour-long variety show, and the comedy sketches still make me laugh to this day. Carol's comedic timing, along with her castmates, was pure joy. Tim Conway would always ad-lib something in a skit, and they all would laugh so hard you thought they were wetting their pants on stage. Carol said she never broke up on purpose. And at the end of each show, the laughs stopped, but the warmth grew. Carol would sing the closing theme song that began with, I'm so glad we had this time together. When she finished singing, she would tug on her ear, which I later found out was a silent message for her grandmother that raised her. My guest today is Carol Burnett. What what brings you to Tara? You, you vixen, you. Style it. I love you. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. That's Carol as Starlet O'Hara making a grand entrance wearing a set of curtains as a dress with the rod still attached. Harvey Corman is smitten as Captain Rat Butler in this Gone with the Wind parody on The Carol Burnett Show. The chemistry between the players on this show, Burnett, Corman, and also Vicki Lawrence, Tim Conway, and Lyle Wagoner, is legendary. The show ran for 11 seasons. The first five seasons have been recently released on DVD. They haven't been seen since airing over 40 years ago. It is incredible, and you see them, and it's the first time we did the uh, soap opera takeoff. The first time, uh, you know, Vicki and her, when we started out, and we were pretty raw. 
pretty raw. Well, we're going to get to that because when I watched the show, I saw so many little tells uh-huh. and so many little things about how you guys crack each other up, obviously. Oh, yes. Uh, there's there's things you guys do to each other. I know. <laughs> and you can just see you almost with joy and almost loathing that they're like you're kind of torturing each it's other. It's like getting the giggles in church. Yes. You know, but the, Alec, when we started the show, uh, I wanted to do it as a live show. We couldn't really do it live because the studio, which I loved that studio because it was it's like is that a TV City, TV City uh, Studio Thirty Three, which uh, is like a little theater. You know, it's like proscenium, and and the seats are down. It's not like the tiered things that you have. You right. know, when when other shows, you know, and so I loved that. We, but we couldn't. Um, there were no flies in the theater. By that I mean where you could fly the scenery in and out and really do a live show. But I I wanted it to go fast. I. I because we had a studio audience there, and I couldn't stand to keep them waiting because if they get bored and sit there for a long time right. while we take our time changing clothes and so forth, right. we lose them. Right. So we lose that energy Momentum. and enthusiasm yeah. that, that you get when an audience is hot. So I would have a bet with the stagehands that I could do a skin-out change faster than they could move that sofa across the room. <laughs> and also, I didn't want um, I didn't want to stop and do pickups if something went wrong. I figured, you know, unless the scenery fell down and knocked us out in the head, uh, I wanted to keep going. So when somebody would ad-lib or do a bit that we had not done before, we never broke up on purpose. Ever, right? Ever, I just well, let's roll. But it was with understood it. that you would ad lib. It was understood that that was. Well, we never said it. It just started happening, so we just let it go. Who was the bad boy in church usually? Tim Kyle. Tim, he seemed like. Do you have comedy insurance? He asked. Uh, yeah. I know. Wasn't oh that brilliant God, you when he said believe. it? Yeah. Yeah, because Harvey was trying to put him on, and then Tim came up and topped him. (laughs) I don't suppose you have comedy insurance down there, do you? Yeah, it was brilliant. I don't believe when you watch this shows, when you watch these shows, your lost episodes, so that audiences from our show understand that it was 67 through 78. Correct. Those 11 years. And the first five years... Uh, are the shows you're referring to as the lost episodes. And when you see... So this is the crowd young. Yes. And you see over 11 years, people get older. Yes. Harvey has a nice kind of auburn color to his hair. <laughs> and then Harvey has like a, a steel color to his hair. And Vicky. And Vicky grows older. And everybody... Not in any bad way, but everybody... Well, 11 years is a long time. You don't see that on TV We anymore. matured. We matured. <laughs> but I will say, with all sincerity, that I don't think... You, you'd have to go to... Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, in my mind, to find someone who is as trim and fit and lithe as you on stage. <laughs> you never had to exercise a day in your life. The show was your workout. The That's things true. you do. Right. When you're scissoring your way across the floor during the fire yes. scene, because yes. you think the fire is happening, I look at you and I go, my God, look at this woman, what she's doing to herself. <laughs> was it physically... As demanding as it seemed? I never felt that. You didn't? No. I, I, I You're just, just in it. Well, you know, you, the 
the adrenaline starts pumping when you're performing and everything. And I, I'm really not that lithe. I mean, I, I still can't touch my toes without bending my knees. I'm not that good. But I was able to do a lot of stunts and things like that. I don't know. I just threw myself into it. Yeah, you don't think about it when you're doing it. And I never hurt myself. I got a few bruises here and there once in a while, but I never broke a bone. I'm jumping out of windows, falling downstairs. Yeah. Doing Crashing all- through doors with Burt Reynolds. Exactly. Yeah. It's always funny. I can do it if the character's doing it. <laughs> that, you know that. If I'm is... saving a baby from climbing into a well. I, I, I totally agree. And uh, in fact, I never knew sometimes how I was going to do a character until I got into the outfit. Interesting. I worked from the outside in. You know, some actors work from the inside out. Right. I, uh, there were lots of times I had no idea what I was going to do until I went into the costume fitting and saw what Bob Mackey had created for me. How, how, how did that union with him and that collaboration with him begin? Where did you first meet Bob? Well, when we were getting ready to do the show, and we said, you know, costuming is going to be really important because the costume designer isn't going to just design for me. That costume designer is going to design for every everybody you see on the screen, dancers, singers, guest stars, rep company, everything you see has to be uh, coordinated by the one person. So um, we had seen um, Alice in Wonderland on television. Uh, I remember Carol Channing was the queen of diamonds or hearts or something like that, but fantastic, wonderful uh, costuming, and then I'd seen Mitzi Gaynor. Uh, I think was in Vegas, uh, and aside from the gorgeous gowns she wore, she also did a lot of fall down humor and you know fat suits and crazy outfits and so forth. And the common denominator was Bob Mackey, mm. and we said, you know, we've got to meet Bob Mackey and see if maybe you know he would be the one. So we got in touch with him. And uh, he came over to our house, bing bong, I opened the door, and there stood this guy that looked like he was 12 years old. Yeah. Just fresh and adorable, and he came in, he was about 24, 24, 25 years old, and we we just liked him right away, we knew he had the talent, so we hired him right then on the spot. And it was one of the best decisions we ever made. When you say we, who was we? My husband. Uh, uh, t- t- talk about your husband. Well, Joe uh, Joe Hamilton right. uh, was the producer of the Gary Moore show. That's right. where we met. And so when I was going to do my show, uh, of course, he was going to be the producer. So we were— And you were on Broadway? I had been, and then we moved to California. How was that for you? Moving to California? Yeah. Well, you were I, ready? Was, I was raised there. Right. Oh. Yeah, I was raised in— By your grandmother. Uh, in Hollywood. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I knew you grew up in San Antonio. No, I grew up, I was seven years old. And you left. And then we left and moved to Hollywood. You had a granny's house. That's right. Where, where in Hollywood? A one-room apartment, uh, one block north of Hollywood Boulevard. The one, that, now this is, you pulled on your ear. Yeah, that was to say hi to say her. say hello to her, yes, yeah. And, she, and where was she at well, the end of her life? Still in California? She was still in California. Did she come and see? Well, she uh, she died before I got my show. Oh. But she had seen me do the Gary Moore show and the Ed Sullivan show and so forth. Was and she just thrilled by what you accomplished? Oh, yeah. Well, the, at first, when I got the chance to go to New York from California, because I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to be Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, you know, that. And she was not for it. She said, your blood's too thin. You'll be dead in a week in New York. Why do you think she said that? She didn't want me to go. She was trying to talk you out of it. Yeah. 
She didn't want to lose you. Correct. To show business. Correct. To the Sodom and Gomorrah Co- of show well, business. Well, she just didn't want me to be away from her. To leave her. her. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, leave yeah. her. But when I got my first show, it was a Paul Winchell Kitty TV show. I auditioned and I got a, a gig on that. And I called Nanny and I said, Nanny, I'm going to be on Paul Winchell's show Saturday. And she said, well, say hello to me. And I said, Nanny, I don't think they're going to let me say hi, exactly. Nanny. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So we, uh, uh, I, we figured out I'd pull my the ear, code. which meant, hi, Nanny, I love you. And then later when I got successful, it meant, hi, Nanny, I love you. Your check's on the way. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. And when, you, and when you go, how would you describe when you're on Gary Moore show, you're one of a company. Yes. And you come to Los Angeles to do your show. Mm-hmm. And you're part of a company, but you're not just part of a company. You're the star of the show, which you're a show. However, I remember remember Gary Moore, and I learned a lot from him. He was so wonderful. And it was his show, the Gary Moore show, and it was very popular variety, comedy variety show. And Derwood Kirby was a sidekick. Derwood Kirby. Derwood and me and uh, Marion Lauren were the second bananas. But he never treated us as second bananas. For instance, Alec, we would come in on a Monday to read the script for that week. And he'd look at it, and he'd say, and he'd have a joke or something. He'd say, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, give this joke to Durward. He can do it better than me, or give this line to Carol. She she can say it funnier than I can. So it was a true rep company, and that's what I learned about my show. Moore set a good example. He for you. set a true, you know. So his name was on it, but we were a true rep company. My name was, you know, at the the head of it. We were a true rep company because when that happens and you don't want to hog it, you know, uh, the show gets better. You give it to right. Tim. You give it give to the Harvey. Ball, you give it got to the hot hand. who's got yeah, and and do it. You know, and, Harvey. Oh, you know, years ago when I was doing the Gary Moore show, one of the guests that week, uh, one week was uh, Ed Wynn. Right. You know, the old, wonderful vaudevillian comedian. And so we were sitting around lunch one day, and he was regaling us with stories and stuff. And he said he started to talk about the difference between a comic and a comedic actor. And Gary said, what what is it? He said, well, a comic says funny things like Bob Hope. A comedic actor like Jack Benny says things funny. Wow. Is that good? Who was the woman? You're in a sketch, the one with uh, the, the, the French revolutionary sketch. Nanette Fabre. Nanette Fabre. She, was, she was on our show 19 times. Can you believe that? She was, oh, she's still with us. Nanny's oh about, she's in her 90s now. Oh and she was wonderful to work with. Absolutely wonderful. I, you, you, are, you see, you're talking to someone who, you know, back then show business was show business. You did Broadway, mm-hmm. you did uh, sitcoms and variety shows like yours, the old great variety shows that you don't see as much anymore. You did game shows. Mm-hmm. Password. They're, they're past Alan Ludden. Uh, yes. You saw you saw Gene Rayburn with that r- antenna-like microphone. The match game. Uh, uh, Richard uh, uh, Dawson was Richard so smart. Dawson. Oh, my gosh. And who was the one that was Klugman's wife? Oh, um, oh uh, uh, Brett. 
Brett Summers. Brett. Those people. Because yeah. you knew they all had like a flask underneath of the course. desk. And they were having a drink. Of course. <laughs> it was a party. <laughs> well, they did that with uh, Hollywood Squares. Hollywood Squares. They'd have, they would have Paul breaks Lind. and everybody would get snockered. Exactly. Yeah. We would do Paul Lind in my house to oh. harass my mother. <laughs> I had a childhood that was just immersed. It was just a wash in this comedy. I watched you. I watched Gleason. I watched Alan Funt. I mean, I'm a kid born in 1958, uh-huh. grew up in the 60s watching TV, pretty much abandoned TV after that. And then I go and, and I go to acting school, and of course, everyone wants to do O'Neill and Chekhov and Ibsen, and we all want to plumb the depths of our soul, and rightfully so. But then I do a sitcom, and I realize I'm stealing from all those people that I saw, <laughs> yeah. and no one more than Corman. Oh. No one more than him. And he is so talented. Oh, he was wonderful. His timing Mm -hmm. and his tone. He could could do the silly. Zachary Scott in in Mildred Fierce. You know, (laughs) unbelievable how smarmy he was. And he channeled Clark Gable. I mean, I swear. He didn't know how he was. He was so nervous that week when we were going to do Went With the Wind. Uh, And he said, I can't do Gable. But the minute he got into the drag, he became, again, what I was talking about, he became... Like the costume led the way. Yeah, and that wig and, the, and the, the mustache and the whole outfit and everything, he became Clark Gable. The show is, of course, uh, I mean, I want to talk about it in terms of not how things have changed, because I think people beat that to death a little bit, but, I mean, you're a woman, it's your show, and did everybody uh, treat you? the way you wanted to be treated back then? Or was it all like, yeah, yeah, sure, honey, put Joe on the phone? That's about right. They did. Well, I it was my doing, too. You know, uh, I in, in that era, there the only one who really would speak up was Lucy. She was very strong. Right. Uh, but it's not in my nature to... Take over. Confront right. or anything. You know, like if, if a sketch wasn't working or something... Instead of like Gleason or Sid would say, look, look guys, this stinks. Now, come on, you got to fix it. But, but, you know, they would do that. I would say, uh, I'd call the writers down into the rehearsal hall and I'd say, you know, guys, um, I'm not doing this too well. Do you think maybe you could help me out with a, a different line here or there? Because, you know, otherwise I would have been a bitch in their you eyes. You felt that way. You know, you and I, yeah. And I, Who I, hired the writers? Joe. How many writers did you have? Well, uh, we had about seven for the comedy, and we had three special material writers who did all the original music and songs and medley and finales and so forth. Like like SNL has. They have a music department. Right. And uh, so that was fine. But I would have a say, and I'd walk into the writer's room. Arnie Rosen was our head writer. And I'd say, you know, I'd love to do Mildred Pierce. Can we do Mildred Pierce someday? Or I want to do Postman Always Rings Twice. Double Indemnity. (laughs) African Queen. Love Story. All of those things. Dial him for murder. You got, well, we never did that. Let me go back and do <laughs> do that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so they would do that. But I did dream a sketch once. I dreamed. Can a, you say it on the air? What oh, that sure, sketch was? Sure. It was. I dreamed it, and we put it on the air. I was uh, <clears throat> in a shower. I mean, the door covered me. You know, and the water was coming down, and I was uh, you know getting wet and washing, and I'm singing. <clears throat> Well, the moment I wake up, dream a little dream of you, and I'm singing, the band is playing, so forth, and then 
I turn the water off, get a towel, kind of dry off, wrap it around myself, open the door, exit, and the camera pans in, and there are three musicians in tuxedos <laughs> playing. Right. You're banned. Ringing wet. <laughs> You're banned. <laughs> yeah. Is there. It worked. Oh, fantastic. It was very funny. So you had those writers, and how much writing did you do? I and wrote, did, it, did it expand I, I, over the years where you became more confident? Well, so, well, how about this and how about this? Well, you I wrote, we wrote on our feet. When we'd get the sketch, we'd start to rehearse, and uh, Harvey would say, you know, can I, uh, I just feel like saying this instead of that. So we'd do it. I would do it, Tim, so forth. And I have to compliment our writers. They never complained. They came down, and if it was funny and working, they said, great, keep it in. Carol tells a story about her friend, Lucille Ball, addressing the writers of The Lucy Show when the pilot wasn't working. Lucy wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She told her kid, that's when they put the S on the end of my last name. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with Kristen Wiig, who early on preferred her scenes unscripted. For some reason, it was less scary to me than having words in front of me because I think when you're handed a script you know that you're supposed to do it in a certain way and people will think like how is she reading this but when you're improvising there's nothing to compare it to and you can yeah, do whatever there's no Blanche Dubois yeah no take a listen at here's the thing.org are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Carol Burnett Show was an ensemble show that welcomed the biggest stars of television and film as its guests. Burt Reynolds, Jerry Lewis, Phyllis Diller, the Jackson Five, Cher, everyone wanted to work with Carol. That was what we talked about, you know, at the get-go. I said, you know, aside from having a rep company, I want to have guest stars. But I don't want to have a guest star, say, say, like a Steve Lawrence, who would come on and just sing a song and maybe we'd see him next in the finale. I wanted to integrate everybody into the show. So many times, I mean, almost every sketch, almost every guest star we had, we put in sketches. So they were throughout the show. They were a member of the company. Yeah. Correct. And so that's certainly what Bert was. And without naming names, when people came on, were some better than others? Yes. What did you do when they came on? Did you just kind of oh, no, diminish were, their role no, on the show? No, or? no. The, they were all pretty good, but some were— so you guys had a nose for that. Fabulous. Uh, Steve Lawrence is one of the funniest human beings in the world. Wow. And hysterical. And uh, he was one of my favorite sketch performers. We did— Postman, Always Drinks Twice. We did African Queen together. We did Double Indemnity together. We did um, uh, uh, From Here to Eternity together. I mean, all, and he was brilliant. And so when we first went into syndication many years ago, uh, we had to cut all the music out. So it was only a half hour in syndication of the sketches because of cost, of clearances and all of that. So... Steve, of course, all of his music was cut out and stuff, so forth. But one time, he had, during this time, he and Edie were in an airport one day, and these teenage girls ran up to him and said, you're that funny guy on the Burnett show. Oh, wow. And he used to say, if you're long, cut my song. Don't cut the sketch. Don't cut the sketch. Cut yeah. my song. Yeah. I can sing anytime. Yeah. But I can't do this anytime. Right. Uh, who were some of the other ones that came on that you— Ken Berry. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Corporal Agard. Uh, he, but sing, dance, he was incredible. He's a showman. Well, he's he's a great dancer, a great hoofer. And he sings, and he's funny. He was adorable. And so we used him a lot. Bernadette Peters was the first. When she was a kid. She was the first person we asked, we signed. She wasn't on, the, on our very first show, but she was the first person we asked to be on our show. Um, Who was someone that surprised you? Oh, gosh. If you can remember. Who was a movie star maybe that came on that surprised you? Betty Grable. No. We had Betty on. Because wow. I was raised in the 40s, and so, you know, she was my favorite movie star. And so I was thrilled when we got her on the show. She was funny, very funny, very sharp, funny, wonderful sense of humor. And, and at the same time on that show was Martha Ray. So we had Betty oh. Grable and Martha Ray, on, and that was the first time we ever did the soap opera as a stomach turns. And it was they were the in it. Turns. Yeah. Uh, your show uh, plays during a time of incredible political upheaval mm-hmm. in the country, uh, the late 60s and the early 70s. Right. It doesn't get any more uh, tumultuous <sighs> Pretty than Pretty heavy, that. yeah. And was that something that you cast an eye toward, or did you decide to ignore it completely? Well, it, I don't know if it was a decision to ignore it, but we uh, we just didn't do it. Right. Uh, Nothing political. N- no, because I I don't know. I, I'm a clown, right. and I just wanted to. Was, lot, I'm going to ask you about that. I just want belly, belly laughs. Right. That's what I wanted. You know, like a Sid Caesar. 
you know, I loved his show. Right. And uh, so that's really Do you consider what yourself a comic or a comic, a comedic actor? Comedic actor. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> for you, that range, I'm, I, I want to get back yeah. to the uh, the Vietnam era thing. But for you, you see you come in and, of course, the wardrobe mm-hmm. and, the, and the wig and the eyebrows make it in Mildred Fierce. Right. The moment you walk in. <laughs> yeah. But also, you have that core of uh, Joan oozing out of you when you walk on. Oh, I just, uh, I just... And then you dump out of it, and you you, you can go from one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. And then you're a clown. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing voices, and you're, the, the character's mm-hmm. collapsing in that mm-hmm. way, and kind of... Uh, you know, in the um, the family sketch, Eunice and Mama and Ed, you know... How, the sorry, you sorry. sorry. Well, we did, a, we did about 35 of those. And one time, we had Maggie Smith on the show. And uh, so it, the sketch was with the family, Maggie Smith was a school teacher, and she called Eunice and uh, Ed and Mama in to talk about the fact that Eunice and Ed's son was a bully. Bubba. Was, uh, you never saw him, but was a bubba in school, and she wanted to discuss it with us. Well, during the course of the sketch, she discovers why poor Bubba is that way. It's because of this horribly dysfunctional family, right? So I don't know whose idea it was in rehearsal, might have been Harvey's. Might have been mine. I don't know. Uh, we decided just as an acting experiment, let's not do it as these characters. Let's do this sketch as if it's a, it's a one act. And so we did it. We didn't go over the top with the, the screeching and all of that. We did it very straight. Now, those sketches never had jokes in them. They were all about character. So when we did that, it was devastating. It was like doing a very serious one act when when uh, Eunice is trying to uh, defend her role as a mother. It was very, very mm. serious. So that was really great writing. And then we topped it off with the, the way we talked and all of that, exactly. you know, screaming like right. that and all that. You know. And then it became funny. It was a great piece of writing and a great acting experiment. We just did it in rehearsal. You partnered with your then-husband. Yes. Now, you didn't stay married to him. We were married for almost 20 years. Right, and you got divorced. Yes. But but during the time you were married, that was a good thing. We were doing the show, yeah. You were doing the show. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you're doing the show with your husband. Mm-hmm. Day in, day out with your husband. Mm-hmm. See, I love that idea. And yeah. some people think that's anathema to them. They never want to do that. Well, what I, was that like? Well, uh, I kind of let him— To the him, extent you want to say. I let him be the boss. Right. Uh, and he protected you. Yeah, he totally protected me. So. And, uh, you know, I could just come in and have fun. Right. He he let you— He worked with the writers and the this and the that. You know, the time that I would work with the writers was when we were uh, staging it. And that's when— Did I've, he think you were funny? Yes. Did you crack him up? You, I'm not really that way in person. As they say, in real life. Right. Don't you love that term? In, yes, re- in real what life. What's somebody like in real life? I'm very kind of quiet. And, and, and was he funny? Yeah, he had a great sense of humor. Yeah, he was. But he wasn't a performer in any way. Well, he actually uh, was a member of the Skylarks, which was a. Uh, <laughs> I have no the, idea what that okay, is. Okay, the Skylarks was a great uh, musical group, like the Hilos and uh-huh. so forth. You know, and uh, he started out writing special material, uh, music material for the Dinah Shore show, years ago. Wow. You know, your show was done in a different era in terms of standards and practices. Mm-hmm. What was that like? 
Did you sit there sometimes and go, Ugh. No, uh, we, they left us alone. They left you alone. We had When one, you stick that sword in Harvey Corman's crotch, what did they say about that? It was an accident. <laughs> so it was it was. an accident? Oh, yes. You. Oh, you. No, one time, though, we, were do- we had this wonderful censor. Uh, uh, that sat, you know, Charlie Petty John, God bless him, and he was a hoot. We just loved him. Anyway, he never bothered with anything. So Harvey and I were doing a sketch where I was a nudist, and I was uh, being interviewed by him, like uh, Edward R. Murrow, you know, and I'm behind a fence that says, keep out, and I'm bare-shouldered, and, I'm, you know, I'm leaning on the fence, bare legs with high-top sneakers on. So it was jokes about a nudist colony, right? So uh, one of the lines was Harvey said, so tell me, how how do you nudist? What do you do for recreation? And my line was, well, we have dances every Saturday night, you know. And he said, oh, how do you nudist dance? And my line was, very carefully. Well, for some reason, the higher-ups, Charlie didn't mind that line. They said, no, that's too, too suggestive. Yeah. Come up with something else. Yeah. Are you ready? So this is what we came up with, and this is what went on the air. Uh, so what do you do? Well, we have dances every Saturday night. Well, how do you do this dance? Cheek to cheek. Right. I know. <laughs> and Is it any better? And they yeah. let, they let, let that and that was funnier. You know, there's material that gets uh, um, revived, and it comes up in none more so than Annie. Oh. And you are the Miss Hannigan, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thank you. And who directed that film? John Huston. What was that like for you? Well, it's very funny. Um, you know, he was not really uh, into musicals. or you Right. Know. <laughs> right. And That's I what have, I'm asking. Yeah. I have a theory. Ray Stark produced it. Of course. Okay. And I have a theory. Ray Stark never liked to get a no out of anybody. I think, this is all in my mind, that Ray called John Huston to play Daddy Warbucks. I, that's my theory, and because he would have been a wonderful daddy sure. Warbucks, and uh, he did Mr. Houston didn't want to do it, so Ray, not wanting to get a no, said, "Well, then, how about directing it?" Right. <laughs> that's my theory, right. you know. But he and was. And Finney did the movie. Finney did the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters. We were the villains, the three sure. villains, and uh, I love doing it. I love doing oh. uh, and. Something that was just great fun was we would sing live. I sang Little Girls live. It was not pre-recorded. The orchestra was pre-recorded. So you were lip-syncing. I was not lip-syncing. So they would play they would the play music the for you to sing to? And I sang. They played a track and you sang live. And I sang live. And, uh, it's a great number. You and him doing you doing that and him doing Easy Street. Right. How was John to work Never with? Never Two takes. That's it. Print. That's it. Yeah. He knew what he wanted. He had the right people. Yeah, one of the funniest pieces of direction I ever got was when I went to him and I said, uh, oh, oh, I talked to him. I said, you know, I think she should drink because she's— Really drink. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. That she should have a little, you know, be, you know uh, knock them back every so often because she's miserable, you know, and hates these kids and so forth. So the only kind of— uh, solace she gets is to knock them back a little bit, you know. And so he, he said, well, that's a very good idea, dear. Yes, that's good. And so I said, okay. So I'm not going to play her drunk, but I'm right. going to play her like she, you know, she kind of— She needs one. She needs one. And so <laughs> the first scene was with Hannigan and um, uh, the secretary who was coming in to get to uh, get Annie, you know. And so I said, 
Mr. Hugh, call me John, dear. Uh, Mr. Hugh, uh, John, uh, how, how do you see this? How do you want me to? He said, he said, just cavort, dear. Just cavort. I had, uh, <laughs> we finished, uh, we wrapped, but what they did, they made a big mistake. They filmed Easy Street with 400 dancers and singers on the Easy Street with a monkey grinder, and uh, we would jump on on, um, uh, fire escapes and jump all around. It it just was overkill. At that time, they spent a million dollars on that one number. It took a week to shoot, and Tim and and, uh, Bernadette and I said, this is just, mm, mm." it should just be the three villains in the orphanage because that's the way it was in the original. They are killing this song. So, but, okay, so it wrapped. So I went back to Honolulu, and uh, I had um, a procedure done on my chin. Uh, I had always wanted a bit because I had a weak chin, and so I, I, this oral surgeon— Put an implant. No, no, he pulled it—somehow he pulled this out three millimeters. You didn't all. have the full John DeLorean implant. No, no implant. Oh, okay. uh, so anyway, so I had a little more of a chin, which I, I felt was good. It wasn't Kirk Douglas. It was just a little <laughs> more of a chin. Okay, so had that done by this oral surgeon in Honolulu. Now, two months later, uh, I get a call from Ray Stark. We're going to reshoot the Easy Street number. I said, well, that's great. I said, but Ray, you know, now I— I have a chin. <laughs> and he said, oh, and I explained it to him. And he's, oh, with all that Hannigan drag, you know, you're not going to worry about it. Also, it's not going to be picture to picture. It'll be a totally separate thing. So, But we're just going to do it with the three of you in the orphanage. And I said, great. So we all flew back. And we report to work. And there's John Houston sitting there and so forth. And we're going to shoot it. And he said, well, uh, this is what I want to do. He said, I would like to take it from... When Carol ran into the closet to get Annie's locket, when she comes back out, that's where we'll pick it up. And I thought, uh-oh. So I went up and I said, Mr. Hugh, call me John. Uh, Mr. Houston, <laughs> uh, two months ago when I ran into the closet, I didn't have a chin. Right. And now I'm, and now I'm ready to, to do come- Lonely or the Brave. <laughs> exactly. Now you're picking up where I come out of the closet and yeah. I have a chin. I just thought I would call that to your attention. And here is what he said. He thought and thought, and he said, oh, well, well, dear, then just come out looking determined. (laughs) Is that a great piece of direction? I remember that. (laughs) That's clever. Um, I I, want to say this. You know who you are to all of us who grew up watching TV then? And I can say to you uh, from the bottom of my heart and without equivocation, what people think of, they think of you when they think of you is you're the most talented woman that was ever on TV. You're oh, the most talented Alec. woman that oh. was ever on TV. You really are. Because there's a lot of people who are like you, and they did some things that were great, but none of them did as much as you did, as well as you did. Oh, wow, thank and you. And had the warmth and the sweetness, and the nut, and the insanity. I mean, I'm assuming there's some therapist out there who must know something about you out there in Beverly Hills. We won't get into that. But you are the most talented woman that was ever on TV, ever. Well, excuse me, I've got to go now and buy a bigger hat. (laughs) Just look determined. Just look determined, Just look determined today, dear. Just cavort. Just cavort out there in New York. 
I'm so glad we had this time together Just to have a laugh or sing a song If you've seen The Carol Burnett Show, then you recognize this tune. Carol ended her show each week singing this song that her former husband and then-producer wrote for her. The Screen Actors Guild will bestow the 2015 Life Achievement Award upon Carol Burnett early next year. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.